Welcome to the What's Your Ceiling podcast. We're your hosts, Monty Wyatt and Paul Szczynski. Wherever you are in life, there is a higher ceiling. This podcast is how you become aware of it and how to take action to push through it. I'm Monty Wyatt, best-selling author of Pulling Profits Out of a Hat and CEO of Adding Zeros Executive Development. I grew up on a family farm in Iowa and have gone from sowing corn to sowing seeds of success throughout the world, leading, managing, and training teams. With me is Paul Szczynski, entrepreneur and investor who also grew up on a family farm here in Iowa. We believe every organization and person can be intentional in how they lead, influence, and manage their lives and businesses. What's Your Ceiling is for professionals, managers, executives, entrepreneurs, and business owners who want to achieve more in their health, family, and business by breaking through their ceiling. Every episode will give you real-world, easy-to-implement solutions so that you can be more aware and take action to reach new heights. It's time to discover your ceiling. Welcome to the What's Your Ceiling podcast, where we talk about your health, your family, your business. I'm Monty Wyatt. I'm Paul Szczynski. And we are looking forward to today's conversation uh, with a gentleman who's been in the healthcare industry and has impacted a lot of lives throughout uh, his career. And we're going to have some great conversations. So, Paul, if you would introduce our, our guest for the day. The gentleman we have here today comes from the farm fields of Southern Indiana. He got, he was, uh, his dream was to get into the healthcare business because he wanted to help people. And uh, he worked his way all the way up to be a CEO of the Iowa Clinics. And we're fortunate to have him here today. And his name's Ed Brown. Ed, welcome to uh, What's Your Ceiling and Breaking Through. Oh, love thank you. Here. It's great to be here. Great yes. to meet you, Monty, and be here Absolutely. Uh, with both of you. Well, we appreciate your time. And we always start with a topic to get us going. And our topic today is healthy culture, healthy organization. So, Paul, when you hear me say that phrase, healthy culture, healthy organization, what comes to mind to you? Well, first thing, I think of positive energy. And any company that I've ever been involved with where I see that's excelling and going through the different ceilings and hitting different, whether it's income levels and building that company and scaling, you see that healthy uh, culture. And that culture, in my opinion, is probably, and it's more important today in, in the last few years than ever, because people want to join that good energy and uh, cultures is what builds great companies. Absolutely, absolutely. Ed, what do you what do you think when you hear that phrase, healthy culture, healthy organization? What's that mean to you? I it means very much as you all have described it. I always used to say, culture comes first, everything else follows. I believe healthy culture type organizations deliver the best patient care. I love how you said that healthy culture comes first. Culture comes first. Yeah. And I really think in today's business world, there's a lot of places where that is a gap and, and it causes problems because you got to you got to treat people correctly. You've got to behave correctly. You've got to interact and work well together. And that's that's a great culture is when you can do those things together. I remember when our organization was first coming together, Monty, and we spent about a year talking about what we wanted to be and who we wanted to be and why we wanted to be that. And about 50% of that conversation was about culture. And uh, I can always remember the we set our priorities for ourselves. And we said patient first, then our departments, um, well, the patient first, then the clinic, then the department that you were in, whether it be medicine or some other specialty or whatever, and then came yourself. 
And it's just exactly backwards than what we normally naturally Mm -hmm. think. We think, well, what about ourselves first? Uh, You put it the other way, at least in healthcare, in my belief is everything else comes and including the patients because the patients see it. Yeah. They know it. It is. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so Ed, you, you have a lot of, uh, you know, you got into the healthcare, but how did you get into the healthcare? What made you decide to get, instead of go to the medical side, you went into the business side. Kind of tell us how you got into the medical Uh, and what made you decide to go into the business. Paul, you know, that's a long, complicated story, (laughs) but I'll, well, as a young man, uh, I had a situation come up where I was a witness to a traffic accident, a very tragic one, uh, one that resulted in uh, a friend of our family being entrapped in her car after her car had been split in half by through a, a terrible accident of a trailer coming loose. As a consequence of that, I witnessing that, I jumped in and got involved. And uh, her father happened to be uh, the owner of the record record service and pulls up and realizes it's his daughter. He sort of breaks down. I take over and back the wrecker up. I get the winch and pull the metal that's wrapped around her body off of her. By about that time, the state police show up and we then pull the back window out of it. And I'm probably about 16 years of age when this is all happening. I get recognized by the, by the way, she lived uh, and uh, came through it after a lot of challenging, uh, yeah. I would say, months of, yeah. uh, of recovery. But um, the state police uh, gave me a citation and an award that was something that I was very, very proud of, still proud of to this day. And uh, But that had such an impact on me. I said, you know, I want to spend you know, my life figuring out how I can help people. I want to help people if I can save lives, if I can do something to deliver health care in a meaningful way. That's, that's what I think I want to do. Now, for a farm boy, that was a long ways off from everything that I knew, <laughs> but that's what got me into it. I love hearing how you you help people and you want to make sure that that's the impact. And you're putting, and I loved your story about patients first as well. And, and I think that's a powerful thing that in your in your mind, you're wanting to help others first and foremost. And I don't think I'm unique in that. I think a lot of people who get into healthcare get into it for that reason. Now, you know, through a lot of different circumstances, those interests can change. But the core driver is I want to make a difference in helping people. And there is such a great reward in that. I can understand why people drawn into it that way. You bet. You bet. Well, tell us a little bit about, you you had a career before the Iowa Clinic, and (laughs) and I want to hear, you know, our show is called What's Your Ceiling, and our audience is called The Achiever, and we want to help The Achiever recognize ways that they can grow and and, and improve their own life in helping others. And so I want to hear how you grew in that career and how you had to grow yourself in that career to make an impact. Sure. Well, I I think I'm like many people that my road to where I am today was not a straight line. It had a lot of twists and turns in it. Uh, The first one being trying to figure out what I wanted to do when I went to college. 
thought I wanted to be a pharmacist and uh, was on a full ride scholarship. And within a short amount of time, I remember calling my mother and saying, I don't think this is what's meant for me. And she said, oh, that's okay. I said, good, I'm coming home. She said, no, you're not. You're going to just continue to go to school and you'll have a lot of time to think about what you want to be. Now, that was absolutely the right thing to tell me at that time in my life. But I had no idea what my mind would think about what I wanted to be. And I remember going back, I want to help people. So uh, there were a lot of different choices for me, but I didn't want to be going in a direction by which I got to my end goal and I wouldn't be happy doing what it was that I was trained to do. So I chose a profession that gave me a lot of options. And that option, profession I chose was nursing. That was very unconventional for a man back in the 70s. And I combined that with having a lot of uh, extra credits because I went to pharmacy school uh, with both business and I was fortunate enough that the state of Indiana had a paramedic program that started and I was able to get into that paramedic program in its opening year and I did that while I was in college. So I got to continue to help people (laughs) and I got exposed to a lot of things in emergency medicine and that nursing, once I completed that four-year degree, Uh, would give me an avenue to go into medicine, give me an avenue to further business or to go into law or maybe a nurse anesthetist. There were just an abundance of different pathways to helping people that I would have available to me. And uh, that was good for me, uh, working in the emergency room right after I got my nursing degree. It helped me figure out which of those pathways that I probably wanted to go down, and I decided to go into business. But I did end up picking a graduate school by which, if I felt like going to school for life, I could have become a lawyer, a doctor, and a business person all at Washington University in St. Louis. <laughs> it's one of the few schools in the country that would offer that complete set of education huh. to you. And uh, uh, I thought I would be double majoring in business and in medicine. Uh, I ended up deciding just to go into the business side of things, and it's been a good choice for me. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. You know, as you, you think about your your decisions of where to go to school. What what did you put into mind? What what made you make wash you the decision? Well, I had a mentor that I reached out to and influenced me about whether I should go into health administration, a gentleman who had been in the business for decades, and he recommended Washington University. He recommended other schools, but he had a bias towards Washington University because uh, he had had several young men and women that had worked for him that had gone there as well. I looked at several schools. I looked at Michigan. I looked at uh, Xavier. I looked at Iowa. I looked at Minnesota. All of them had great programs. Uh, Ohio State. I got into all of them but one, and I was really uh, pleased that I got into Wash U. Uh, what's ironic about that is the one that I didn't get into was uh, a place in Iowa called the University of Iowa. And what <laughs> became funny about that is I uh, became an adjunct faculty professor for the university for about 10 years teaching health administration students. And I said, you never know how things come full circle. And uh, uh, I love teaching. So that was that was a great honor to be able to do that. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. 
<laughs> you know, I, I'd, I'd love to hear your story. You were telling us earlier about the career you had before the Iowa Clinic and the impact that you made. And I, I want to hear what you did in Arizona. And, and maybe if you want to start before that, you yeah, sure can. Sure. Uh, but I, I want to hear the, the going back to our theme of the culture. Sure, sure. Well, I took an unconventional route. I continued that in my career because most health administration programs train people to be hospital executives. I went into the HMO industry uh, back when it was a four-letter word, as I say. It wasn't a very popular uh, uh, industry at the time because some HMOs were being managed well, some weren't being managed so well. And I started out in Florida uh, in a situation that was a turnaround set of circumstances and had done quite well. And a uh, company came calling uh, for my boss and mentor that I worked there uh, in uh, Tampa and a company called Humana. And uh, he ended up taking a position with them. Humana was having a lot of pains at that time and they wanted to turn things around and we had had experience doing that. So that's how we got sought out. My boss convinced me to follow him to Arizona, and uh, that situation was interesting because it was a well, it was a small HMO. It, it was very dysfunctional, very disorganized. There was no culture, and I explained to my boss and some of the people at the corporate office that I felt like we needed to do something dramatic to change, or otherwise it would take a long time for us to turn the ship around. So I ended up laying virtually everyone in the office off uh, shortly after my arrival. Uh, The corporate office flew in about uh, four dozen people temporarily to take over those positions and continue operations. And we went through the process of trying to figure out, you know, who would be a good fit for us. And I was explaining earlier the first criteria that I went through, because I only had a short amount of time to figure things out very quickly, is I looked for people who graduated from high school in the Midwest. I wanted people with work ethic and uh, a strong uh, value system that when we worked as a team, uh, they would relate to that. And if you happen to have had a rural background, I didn't mind that either. (laughs) (laughs) Good old country boy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's it. So you go in, you basically have to fire the majority of the people. And it was more of changing the whole culture, right? Absolutely. It was all about changing the culture. And the culture ended up driving everything from that point forward. Everybody was new. We we would work on ways to get together and develop a team approach to things. There was a lot of communication going on with people. So they knew by myself, they knew what was going on in the company and why we were doing the things that we were doing. And it brought purpose to their particular roles, whatever they might be. And we made sure that the objectives they had and the goals they had in their particular areas of service were clear and everybody was supporting of that and supporting of them. And so you didn't feel like you were, you know, working in some type of solitary situation that everyone was rooting for you and you were rooting for them. And when we... um, Uh, began working on some of our uh, objectives openly with everybody, we would just have open staff meetings where we'd give 
a very open report about how we were doing. Uh, there was no reason for any of us to be in the dark about things because we were all in this boat together. That culture ended up coming through in the performance of how we operated the company and how it was perceived by those on the outside, and particularly the physicians. I quickly went after, we were, we were contracted with physicians, and most of the physicians in the Phoenix area completely dismissed us. I had a couple of uh, computer geeks, I will call them, come in and help me figure out all this green line uh, computer uh, tabbed uh, reports that were in a great big room and was filled to the ceiling with these things, and I didn't have a clue what they meant. And I said, go in there and figure out what those things say and, you know, come back and get me when you figure that out. And I would go by and see them in there once a week and talk to them. And have you got to figure it out? Oh, we're making progress. We're making progress. But about two months later, I had asked them to put some type of synopsis together to get it on two pages. And what they did is there was two elements to it. One was financial and one was clinical performance of the doctors. They profiled every doctor in our uh, network. And oddly enough, I didn't care whether it was completely accurate. What I wanted to use the tool for was send it out to the doctors and see how they reacted to it. And they did not react positively. But I was able to use that as a tool to get them to get engaged and help me make it better. And that began the process of being sort of the mustard seed that turned the culture for the physicians, that we were going to be physician-driven. And you can't have good quality without the physicians driving it. What, what a great way of <clears throat> looking at that. You, obviously, the doctors got in there for a reason. That's to help people. Mm-hmm. And then you go into a culture that's negative, and then you got to turn that around. You're bringing the passion back into those doctors. And mm-hmm. You gave them that report, didn't you? Yeah, absolutely. Well, they were passionately passionate to tell me why it was wrong. Mm-hmm. And I didn't disagree with them. I said, well, that probably is. And we need to get it right. And he said, tell me what we need to get right about it. Tell me what's wrong about it. And they were driving the solution. And these two geeks went from being analysts to recording everything that they said and going back to the corporate office and saying, here's what they're saying is wrong about it. What can we do to change it? I really want to reinforce something to our audience, the Achiever. You know, you got them engaged to make it better. And you you didn't go in with all the answers. Well, usually you never have the answers. Well, and I think that's a great point because there's a lot of times that people in those positions, you're believing or you feel you have to have the answers. You didn't have the answer. You wanted the answer to come from them. And that's how you got them to engage. And they drove the solution. I think experience will give you a good intuition of what answers might be. But if you can't validate them, then you're going to be going down a trail alone and you want to make sure that you're going arm in arm with the people that can make a difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a great way. You know, when you inspire, um, getting the valued opinion of everybody, they feel valued, mm-hmm. which inspires, which gets back to you is it's with the answers within the people that you have. If you got the right people in the right seats. Yeah. It's certainly within the scope of what their awareness and their knowledge is and expertise is. And then you allow them to learn from everybody else they work with. They're able to put the mosaic together. Mm-hmm. And that creates the picture. They go, oh, we know what this is all about now. And uh, because 
<clears throat> just being a nurse, you're being a nurse taking care of patients every day. You're hard, it's hard to get out of that circle that you're focused on. But if you get in there with a lot of other people that have different perspectives in this bigger organization, they can put some kind of connection to it. Well, while I do this and you're doing this and you're doing that, we have a bigger purpose that we're serving here, whether it is a health system for the community that you live in or whether it's a clinic or whatever it might be, that uh, the picture of all of them being together is what makes the organization. So, so, you, so you go to Arizona, you turn that, that HMO around, uh -huh. and then you end up... I get uh, promoted. You get Can promoted. you believe that? <laughs> <laughs> I was the first person at Humana to profile physicians, and they thought, well, that's a great idea. Let's take that and see if we can do that nationally. Now, I wasn't responsible for it, but I ended up explaining to the team back in Louisville what we were trying to be accomplished. A lady who was a regional vice president over about 60% of the company had taken a liking to me and asked me to come work for her. And uh, so I was, that uh, was one of the toughest jobs I ever had. Uh, I was the guy who had to go out to the field and make sure all of the field folks were helping us meet the numbers, helping us. That was not a fun job. I used to turn around and uh, want after I left, I found out my nickname was Darth Vader. <laughs> and uh, because if, if I had to come and point out the same issue three times, that was probably not a good thing for your career. And then I had to then figure out who your replacement was going to be. But it taught me a lot about uh, corporate life. And uh, while I was effective at the job, while I always made sure the company met earnings, uh, and that's how you get rewarded in some for-profit companies, most for-profit companies. Mm -hmm. I uh, then was given the opportunity to have the largest market in Humana to go to Chicago. And uh, my boss had gone there uh, ahead of me, and she was being brought back to Louisville. And uh, I would be going there to take her place. Problem was, we had a three-year-old girl, and that was not something my wife was real crazy about, living in downtown <laughs> Chicago, company condominium. Uh, they were very generous and had a, nothing wrong with what the company did. It was just at that point in our life that didn't fit. So I commuted back and forth for a year uh, to Chicago. Chicago and, and Louisville. And, uh, you know, one day I, I was back in Louisville and was asked to come into the big house. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I was called out and said, you know, we want you in the Cranes Business Journal. We want you to see you in the public and that kind of thing. And, and while I made a lot of connections in Chicago, I wasn't as committed as I needed to be. And I understood their position. And uh, so we decided that I was going to leave the company. Uh, my wife and I did and started a consulting company. I gave a six-month notice. And by God, they kept me at all six months. <laughs> and <laughs> and um, in that time, uh, a company came calling, knocked on my door and said, look, we have a situation. We'd like you to help us out. Our management company got bought out from underneath us. We were contracting with them to run an HMO that we own. And that company had happened to be in Des Moines, Iowa, and it was the principal financial group. And uh, I uh, helped them for a year, and uh, in that time, I helped acquire their number one competitor 
in the HMO industry, merged them together with uh, the principal's uh, HMO and reduced the fees for the local hospital and reduced the fees for all the physicians. And I didn't give them any warning. I just sent a letter out. Probably the least popular man in the city for a while. And uh, a bunch of the doctors all got together at the Marriott in downtown Des Moines to have a big meeting to talk about this company's doing this to us. And they asked me to come speak to sort of cover their trails so there wouldn't be any antitrust violations. And uh, I showed up. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so we had a talk for about an hour. It was a great discussion. Uh, certainly took a lot of questions and was candid with them about what I saw the economics of healthcare being. And uh, some of them got together and said, you know, we need to see if we can hire that guy. And uh, I politely declined three times. I made uh, the fatal mistake of sort of liking them and started to investigate it a little bit further. And you heard me talk about earlier that I talked to a lot of business leaders, maybe about 20 of them, and uh, not a single one of them suggested I go to work for these people to help them achieve what they had in mind. And they wanted to build a clinic. They didn't know how to do it. But in the course of our discussions, I described what my aspirations, if I was to take the job, would be and made sure that they could live up to some of that or all of those aspirations. And uh, they thought they could. In fact, they committed that they could. And that was that we build a clinic that would rival the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. Now, I knew that was a tall order, but you don't get anywhere without something big to strive mm-hmm. for. And uh, that became the first step. Of, it was called the Iowa Clinic Healthcare Network because they weren't a clinic yet. And, uh, and over the course of a year, we merged about 26 offices into one single corporation and became the Iowa Clinic PC. And then you end up building that from $50 million to over $300 million over the years. Yeah. And I like I like to think of it in terms of doctors. We, we right. built that from about 50 doctors up to about 250 providers. And, oh, I would say about 160 of those were physicians. They'd be nurse practitioners, PAs, other right. um, physical therapists, other professionals too in there. But uh, it was, uh, and today the Iowa Clinic's even bigger, continues to grow. That's amazing. That's amazing. And, you know, we, you know, I'm taken out of this interview. I mean, it, it, this is something I know you teach with your clients all the time. And uh, culture, I mean, is so important. Inspiring the people that are there, you know, engage and have that passion. But another thing I know is really important, and I know with your clients and we try to do in our business, is tracking, tracking our numbers, tracking uh, to achieve your goals and target numbers. You've got to track it. Mm-hmm. You've got to have a history. And you, in your business background, you probably you were taught that tra- that tracking. And, and you, talked, you touched on it a little bit earlier. And uh, I think that's important because then everybody sees the truth, the map. Mm-hmm. And uh, tracking numbers or, I, I, or information. Well, and, and in our business, and I hadn't talked about it earlier, we made sure we started getting involved in research and we started publishing our research. Our research was both on the management side 
for outcomes and on the clinical side of outcomes. Uh, the Iowa Clinic continues to be involved in medical research, maybe not so much in business research, but uh, I used to enjoy talking about culture and how the Iowa Clinic came to be in front of peers. And one of the honors that I had in the 26 years I was at the Iowa Clinic is I got recognized by my peers and asked to serve uh, on the board of the American Medical Group Association and eventually became the chair of that association. That's the Mayo Clinics, the Cleveland Clinics, Oshners, all the big clinics in the United States, about 300 of them, and they make up about a third of the doctors. That was a great honor. I was only the second non-physician to have that honor. Wow, that's wonderful. And yeah, yeah it was it was a big deal. <clears throat> and the other thing that became very unique about it is I also happened to be the chair during the Affordable Care Act during the Obama administration and went through the due diligence and the decision making and so forth about whether we were going to support it or whether we weren't going to support it. In principle, we did support it, but the actual act uh, we itself, we did not. And we had strong representatives on our board, uh, like Mayo Clinic and Cleveland Clinic and Geisinger. And uh, while we voted not to support it, uh, we were politically savvy about it and gave them that information on a Sunday so it wouldn't make any news. And then we also allowed members who did feel in favor of it to reach out and if they wanted to uh, advise the Obama administration, they did support it as a clinic, they could. That's why President Obama signed the agreement at both the Cleveland Clinic and the Geisinger Clinic, because while they were on our board and while they voted uh, in favor of it, the majority was against it. <laughs> and uh, and he didn't go to the Mayo Clinic because, <laughs> <laughs> or the Iowa Clinic. <laughs> But, you know, those experiences, they, they grow and shake. Absolutely. What do you think is the biggest challenge in healthcare today? And what do you think needs to be done about it? I'm glad you asked me the easy question, Marty. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> as I'm looking in the camera. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm afraid I'd be working for the government now if I knew that answer. Um, the biggest challenge we have is the cost per person in the United States for delivering healthcare is extremely bloated and absorbed. And our country can't afford that rising cost. And in the face of the economic challenges and the debt of our country, we have to deliver health care different. We are moving more and more to outpatient. I tell everybody we're moving more and more to home. And uh, I think all of those things, along with technology, are the right thing to do. We are moving advances in pharmacogenetics that are going to transform diseases and, uh, and taking pills to cure things in ways that we can't imagine. Those things can't come fast enough. So we're finding our system at a fractionated point. We've gone through COVID and COVID had a traumatic effect, dramatic and traumatic effect on our country and on our healthcare delivery system. A lot of burnout. And so we have a shortage of healthcare workers and we have increasing expenses. Uh, we have a formula that uh, is not working uh, financially and the government is figuring how to reduce the cost of how they deliver that care. And a lot of our systems are not faring well economically. So we have a lot of pains. Uh, we're working on getting answers and I'd say uh, the answers to that are, you know, don't keep doing the same old thing that doesn't work. Right. Uh, we gotta do things differently. Yes, yes. 
it's a different time, no doubt about it, with yeah. uh, healthcare. Uh, but you know, I think we'll, we'll find a solution. Oh, it's America. And I think we're innovating. And uh, AI is going to have a big effect on our medical and, and the future of business. Yeah, which is it does. I'm amazed at what has happened to AI, uh, particularly since chat GPT came yeah. uh, on the scene. And, you know, I know there's a lot of security issues and things that are going on with that. And that those things will be addressed. I have a great deal of confidence. But uh, I, I've i seen, even in my own business that I'm involved in, where we could capture a patient engagement in an exam room and it'd be at 65% right using AI. That 65% in the course of one year has gone all the way up to 85 to 87%. <laughs> and that's good enough for what I would call the simple non-complex visit. And I know in our organization, we use what we call AI and CI, and that's clinical intelligence. That's human oversight of a highly trained clinical person seeing it. And we can get it 100% correct. So the doctors no longer typing and pounding into the medical record. They can have the engagement with the physician. When they're done with that exam, they're done with it. The note will be on their desk the next day and they can sign off on it. While it's not perfect yet, I predict in another two years, it'll be almost to that point. And, uh, you know, you adapt and not try, and I say this in everything, if you expect perfection before you execute, you'll never get anything done. Perfection is the enemy of progress. And so that that's another thing that you have to uh, accept about the transition is to turn around and yeah. accept where you are and keep moving forward. Yeah, I, I think AI is going to be wonderful, uh, like you say, once it gets under control. And I think it's going to be great for business, mm -hmm. great for healthcare. But uh, hey, Monty, a great interview today. And uh, I've learned a lot. And I think it talks a little bit about a lot of what, you know, we talk about in this podcast. And I know the achievers out there, you know, everybody, what does that person have in that secret sauce? Well, we talked a lot about it. We talk about the culture. We talk about tracking, inspiring, passion, the right people. And we got a lot of that right here today with Ed Brown. And, uh, oh, thank you. You know, Ed, we always ask this question. Do you want to ask it, Monty? We, you got any more questions? You want, well, I, I wanted to bring out a couple things that I thought were, were fascinating from you that I want our achievers to understand and know that it's okay. You built a team from scratch. You did something dramatic and you let everybody go and you started from scratch. When something isn't right, it's okay to do that. Yeah. And, it, and it makes a big difference. And I, I think that's a that's a powerful thing. Culture drives everything. It, bring, it brings purpose. It brings everyone together. Um, you know, you got people engaged by getting them to help come up with the answer. And I think that's a powerful thing. We as leaders and managers don't have to have all the answers. And most of the time we don't. Mm -hmm. And we need to get those involved that are on the front lines that are dealing with these things every single day. And I, I love two, two more statements that I captured. Perfection is the enemy of progress. <laughs> and I think that's fantastic. And you don't get anywhere without something big to strive for. And I think that's a great challenge to our achiever is what's that big thing that you're striving for? And you don't have to have the answer of how to get there. You just have to choose it and then you work towards it. So I, I think that's fantastic. So I think it is too. So thank you for sharing those key points. The, the last question that we always ask is what do you want to be known for? Oh. I know, big, deep question here to yeah. close our time. Yeah. Multiple answers for that for different reasons. I think I want to be, from a business perspective, be seen as non-conventional entrepreneur who's willing to change. I want to be a great father, 
husband and known that uh, that my family was important in my life. And I have to admit, during uh, part of my career, I was too immersed in my career and didn't give enough to that. And uh, so in my retirement, I'm making sure I give more. And um, I think the last thing, you know, you, that you always want to keep in mind, at least I do, is my faith. Uh, I want to have lived a life that had a purposeful meaning and uh, you know we're only on here for a short period of time to make a difference and uh, you want that difference to be made in the in the right manner I, I love that answer and I, I love all three of your points so thank you for sharing that that's <laughs> okay. I, I, that's that's great and I want our achiever to make sure you take those things home as well and we want, really appreciate Ed you joining us today on the show and it was an honor I and, appreciate being asked uh, love to have you and we keep challenging our, our listener, the uh, achiever, to keep pushing themselves to the next level, keep learning, keep growing. And the more you learn, the more you grow. So thanks for joining us today. We'll see you next week. Give that punch, that like button, subscribe. We'll give you more great content coming up. Thanks. Thank you for listening to What's Your Ceiling? We hope this episode has helped you transform the way you think, understand your awareness, has given you new ideas, and has provided you a new perspective on how to push through your ceiling. Please take in a second to give us a thumbs up. Each review helps us impact more people just like you making a difference in this world. See you next week on What's Your Ceiling?